Welcome to an extra slice of the pie. This is an expanded podcast series featuring conversations with University of Chicago scholars on cutting edge research and key events of the day. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute. In this episode, we're hearing from Esteban Rossi Hansberg, the Glenn A. Lloyd Distinguished Service Professor at the University of Chicago and co-director of BFI's International Economics and Economic Geography Initiative. He specializes in international trade, regional and urban economics, and macroeconomics. Esteban spoke as part of the Friedman Forum series in Chicago. And in this episode, we hear him discussing his research on the economic geography of global warming. Here's Esteban Rossi Hansberg. This topic of uh, the economic geography of global warming is obviously kind of a of great interest, kind of in an abstract way to, to all of us. We all want to try to understand the impact that global warming and more generally climate change is going to have uh, on the economy and on other aspects of uh, the life of uh, humans in this planet, I'm going to limit my approach to think about the economic implications of climate change and global warming in particular. Of course, there's many other aspects, and so let me just preempt by saying, you know, I'm not going to touch on those aspects, and of course they are there, and the fact that I'm not addressing them directly doesn't mean that they don't matter or they don't exist or are in some sense take second, second, uh, are second order relative to what I'm going to talk about. Okay, so we all know about the basic phenomenon. The CO2 concentration has risen rapidly since, uh, since, since the mid-1800s. Uh, uh, that's you know, has been attributed and is, you know, very clearly attributable to uh, human behavior. So human industri- so the industrialization, uh, transportation, and other forms of economic activity have generated CO2 emissions that have accumulated in the atmosphere uh, at unprecedented levels, and that has uh, led to increases in temperatures. So here I have uh, two graphs from the IPC see the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change, the latest report that they brought out. Uh, This shows the very, very long-term perspective, so over thousands of years, and you see kind of the big peak in temperatures at the very last part, in the very last part of that period between 1850 and 2020. And on the right-hand side, you see the actual changes since 1850, so kind of a zoom in on this part of uh, of the graph, and you see the, the big increase in the actual temperatures. And, and, and here is also like their attempt to say, well, what's kind of the contrafactual scenario in which you know, humans didn't generate all these uh, CO2 emissions? What would be the temperatures? Uh, that, that's the, that's the, green, the green curve there and the confidence intervals around that. So you see, you know, there's obviously the, the brown ones are much higher than the green ones, meaning humans and their actions, have generated increases in temperatures. And that, so that part is by now uncontroversial. And uh, even though there's certain uncertainty about how big this effect is, as you can see from the kind of confidence intervals around the basic uh, the point estimates, we're very, very, very confident that that, that, that effect is there and that it's uh, relatively large. Okay, so, so 
that's the, that's the basic science of this, or the basic uh, fact that we know. Now, what we want to try to understand is what's the economic impact of this, right? Which is, of course, very different than what is the science of the phenomenon itself, to what extent temperature has reacted to the uh, em CO2 emissions or cumulative CO2 emissions that we've seen uh, in the history of uh, the industrial world. These graphs are about the science, not about the economics. We want to try to understand what's the economic impact of this. Now, the basic point, there's a basic point here, which is that CO2 emissions are a global externality. So what do we mean by that? We mean that you know, there's individuals and firms that act by, and use carbon or emit carbon, use energy, implies production that generates CO2 emissions. But these CO2 emissions then very quickly mix in the atmosphere and affect global temperatures and, in general, climate in the world, not the climate of those particular regions. Right? It's, it's, it affects the world overall. And so because of that, individual, individuals in particular regions or firms in particular regions do not face the full consequences of those emissions, right? Because they affect the climate everywhere in the world. And so because of that, because they don't face the full impact of their decision to emit, this is what we economists call an externality, right? You don't face all those all those effects. And that is, in itself, a justification for policy. That is already sufficient to say, we want to act, and we want to do something about this, because the market itself, if we just don't do anything, that's not going to be an efficient solution, because everyone is going to emit more than what, from the world's perspective, we want them to emit. And so that already invites you know, the role for, for policy. And so I know that everything that I'm saying is very basic, so we're just warming up. Okay, so we want policy, but of course every time we, we want to, ju this justifies policy, but it doesn't justify what policy, how big should that policy be, right? How many resources should we actually spend on this, right? It doesn't tell us anything about that. It tells us there should be policy, we need to address this somehow, but it doesn't tell us about the exact policy or, or the magnitude of the problem that we need to solve. Okay? And so what this research that I'm going to show you is about, kind of the premise of this is, well, we need to think about how big this phenomenon is, because if, if we as a society are going to go and dedicate serious resources to address this, we better know how big the, what's the magnitude of the economic effects that this will have, what are the potential policy solutions? What's going to be their impact? So that we can compare with the many other needs of society, right? Because there's all sorts of other needs. We also need to so solve pandemics. We also need to help develop you know, the, the parts of the world that are underdeveloped. We also need to help people that don't have access to all sorts of different services, etc. There's many, many, many policy needs in the world. And so in order for us to assess the needs of society, we need to evaluate this phenomenon. We cannot avoid that step. That step is essential. That's where kind of this research uh, comes in. Now, if, when we want to think about how to do that, 
What, what is going to determine the economic impact of climate change? The point that I want to make here is the following. How costly in economic terms is global warming or climate change more broadly depends directly on the cost of moving economic activity across locations, of changing the places where we live and where we work and where things are being produced. In a nutshell, is, the argument is, well, there's a wide range of temperatures in the world. The increases in temperatures that we're talking about from carbon use, et cetera, in the most extreme scenarios, and we're talking very extreme scenarios, are going to say be 7 degrees Celsius over 400 years, right? That's very extreme, right? But it's still within, clearly within the range of temperatures that we see in the world. And so with that, I mean, the, 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 the kind of obvious implication of that is that, yeah, this is going to be terrible, devastating for some areas of the world. But for some others, you're going to move them from zero degrees to seven degrees, and that is, perhaps is not as bad. And so th that heterogeneity matters because, of course, if then we can costlessly take economic activity and move, the, move it from where it is to places that are not going to be as affected or are actually going to be even better off, then if we can do that cheaply, then this wouldn't be a big problem. Right? We just do that, and that's it. Now, of course, you can come and tell me, no, no, but moving economic activity is really costly. And I agree with you. It can be quite costly, right? But the point, my point is that it's going to depend on those costs. The overall effect or impact or economic impact or cost of climate change is going to depend on that. Now, another way, a thing that you could, you could tell me is, well, you know, maybe we're just run out of land. Right, out of productive land, and if you kind of decertify a bunch of the areas that the world has, uh, can use to produce, we're not going to have enough areas to produce. But the reality is that most land in the world is just not economically used. It's essentially economically empty. So there's plenty of land. That's not the problem. And so at the end of the day, where, where do we end up then? Well, it is going to be about moving economic activity, moving economic activity out of some coasts because there's going to be sea level rise, moving economic activity about, uh, from some parts of in Africa, et cetera, that are going to warm up to a, play, to a, to a level where it's going to be very hard to live and produce there. right? But it's all about moving that economic activity and how costly that process will be. Now, you can say, well, yeah, but I mean, we, people just stay where they are. We've never seen this. And so you, know, you come here and you tell us that all this, we are going to move you know, the whole distribution of economic activity across locations. But, but I think that's completely unrealistic. And so here's my answer to that, which is, well, we've seen it before. And we've seen it not in this modern society where we can take planes and move and do all sorts of things. We've seen it in the 12th and 13th centuries, in the medieval warm period, where temperatures grew by 2 degrees, say, um, roughly. right, And that implied you know, big changes in the societies at that time. So Mesoamerican uh, societies and the Khmer Empire declined, partly 
because their circumstances, their physical circumstances around them became much worse because uh, climate was warmer, but it was actually pretty good for Nordic societies that, you know, uh, and allowed them to grow in terms of size, but also uh, in terms of their uh, settling in other places like Iceland, Greenland, etc. It also helped the Mongolian Empire to expand. That's the kind of whole story of Genghis Khan. And so, and so these are just examples. I mean, if you want more examples like this, go to the book by Brian Fagan about the medieval warm period that exactly goes through all sorts of stories and how this movement for different groups was uh, related to, to, to the changes in climate that happened during that medieval warm period. So, you know, adaptation, if those societies back then could adapt, you know, imagine our current societies, right? If anything, it should be simpler. But it's obviously not free, and so, so we still need to think about how to bring that all together in models in which we can take into account those costs, the fact that it's costly, and the fact that individuals are going to make decisions and are going to be adapting in order to avoid the worst uh, effects of this type of phenomenon. Okay? And we're going to do that, and so it's very important for us to build these behavioral models, models that explicitly model the behavior of both individuals and firms so that we can really think about the very long term when all of this is going to really matter, when all of these effects are going to accumulate to lead to a, a world that is going to be quite different in terms of its climate potentially, right? And so we need to, we need to think about all of those, th that behavior and how that behavior can lead to a very different world. And it's just not enough or it's not necessarily uh, the best methodology that we can put forward to simply extrapolate from the effects that we've seen so far. Just because that world and those effects are going to be very different than what we've seen so far. So extrapolating just empirically from measurement from what we see today is, uh, is kind of difficult. Okay, so I'm going to show you the, the results of such a model that includes those behavioral responses. And it's a model that is going to generate kind of a pad of CO2 emissions, so in the, in the quantified version, that is going to be very similar to the, the scenario. I mean, for those of you that know a little bit about this, the IPCC puts out scenarios, some more extreme than others. The most extreme kind of business as usual scenario where there's no policy to really address carbon is the RCP 8.5 uh, scenario, uh, which is like the dashed line here. And the green line is the outcome of the model that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be showing you. And that leads to an evolution of temperatures. This is kind of the numbers that I was quoting before that is also close to that scenario in the IPCC. So the, the type of uh, increases in temperatures are large that, 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 that are going to underline all the results that I'm showing you are quite large in line with the worst case scenarios of the IPCC models. Now the key is going to be that these increases in temperatures affect local areas of the world very differently because of two main reasons. One is that when average temperatures grow, local temperatures don't grow by the same amount. A one degree Celsius increase in global temperatures implies a two degrees Celsius increase in, in temperatures in the very red areas here, but only a half degree increase in temperatures in the very blue areas in that map. 
And then uh, the second reason is that, of course, it's not the same to get, if, if my location gets warmer if I'm in the Sahara than if I'm in the tundra. And so the, in a nutshell, so I'm not going to show you like, the, the model in detail. We don't have time for that. But uh, let me just, to, so that you get a little bit of a sense of how things work, let me try to explain with this diagram. So there's going to be people and firms living in all these different regions in the world. And the resolution that I'm going to be using is the resolution that you see in this map. So a pixel in that map is what I'm calling a location. Okay? And so there's many thousands of those in, in that graph uh, or in those maps. Okay? And there's in, in each one of those, there's people and firms. Uh, people are living there. They own the land. They are, uh, supply that land for production and they uh, supply labor, they work. And then there's firms, and these firms are going to be producing goods using labor, land, and energy. They are going to produce particular goods that they are going to trade, subject to trade costs, with the rest of the world. And they're going to potentially innovate. They're going to improve their technology. They're going to spend some resources to improve their technology. And their incentives to do that, to innovate more or less, depend on the market that they have, how big is that market? So if you live in the middle of, uh, or if that firm is in the middle of uh, a great concentration of economic power or economic, or, or lots of aggregate consumption in that region, well, then you want to innovate more. Why? Because for, I only pay once for innovation, but I can use it many times to supply all the goods to everyone, right? So there's, you know, innovation is a big uh, economies of scale kind of activity. And these firms then have a particular level of productivity, how good they are at transforming inputs into output. And given that, they're going to pay some wages, wages for labor, rents for uh, land. And agents then are going to take those wages, rents. They're going to consume with those. And they're going to also experience some benefits from the characteristics of where you live. So if you live in a really nice area with really nice weather, for example, you enjoy it. Or if you live in a nice city, you enjoy it relative to living in a place that is maybe more arid or not, as, uh, not without uh, as, many, as many amenities. So the economic gains from living in a particular place plus these kind of utility benefits of being in a, in a place that is kind of nice to live in are going to determine whether individuals want to be there or want to move away to some other location. And if they move away to some other location, they pay costs. They pay migration costs in order to do that. That is the kind of the core economic model. And then these firms use energy. Energy, in turn, can be produced with clean and fossil fuels. If it's produced with fossil fuels, which is a decision of these firms, that generates CO2 emissions, which increase the stock of carbon. That's what we were discussing before. That has an effect on global temperatures, which in turn has an effect on local temperatures, but heterogeneous, that's what we were saying. And then the, importantly, these local temperatures are going to have three key effects on productivity of these firms, on these amenities, right? how nice it is to live in a particular location, and potentially also on birth versus uh, death rates through, for example, effects on health and things like that. Okay. So that's the core of the model. And then you can quantify this model so that this economy matches exactly what I see in the world today. So output levels in the world in each one of these cells, 
population levels in each one of these cells, the fact that these cells trade the right amount between them, the fact that mobility across areas of the world captures what we see in the data as well. So you can inform this model with all, so that you match exactly how the work world, in some sense, looks like today. And so then the exercise that we want to do is we want to say, okay, let's run this model and see what's the, what's, how is the world going to look like in the future if we just let this model work with climate change or without climate change. And so we can compare those two scenarios. Now, in order to do that comparison, we need this model because we, the, one is a contrafactual scenario, a scenario where climate change doesn't happen or a scenario where we impose some policy that otherwise we wouldn't have. So we need to do these contrafactual scenarios. For that, we need a model that has these things. Now, one key part of that model, one essential core part of the quantification of that model, is those local effects. To what extent changes in local temperatures are going to affect productivity, the amenities, and those natality rates, right? Those are the direct effects of higher temperatures in a location on the characteristics of that location for economic activity, either living there or producing there. So we want to know that. And so what we can do is we can use the model to read out of the data what the local amenities and productivities are over different periods of time. So say, in this case, over a 20-year period. And that gives us what we call a panel of data on productivities and amenities in the different parts of the world. Namely, we have the level of productivities and amenities for every period in each one of these locations. And then we can say, well, conditional on that, what's the effect that climate changes, in, or in particular temperature, local temperatures, have had on those amenities and those productivities? We can measure that. And we can allow for different local characteristics, fixed effects, et cetera. So, so we can do that in a kind of fairly detailed way. And this is what comes out of that. So what I have here, this is the effect on, uh, on productivities. This is the effect on amenities. Let me focus on the effect of amenities first. So this is the amenities that come out of this exercise. And what I have here is the, 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 the impact that temperature will have on the amenities of the different locations ordered by their initial temperature. So this is initial temperatures in winter. So here it would be in January. Uh, and so these are the coldest places in the world. And those are the warmest places in the world. And so what is this, this number 0.025 give, telling you? It's telling you if local temperatures in that particular location go up by one degree Celsius, what's the percentage change in local amenities? And what this 0.025 tells you is the answer to that is 2.5%. So if you multiply by 100, that would be, give you the percentage. So namely, in the coldest places in Alaska or Siberia, when temperatures increase, amenities go up. Right. This is not imposed on anything. It just comes out of this calculation that I, I, I told you about. Now, it's very different in the warmest places in the world. In the warmest places in the world here, right? if you increase local temperatures by one degree Celsius, amenities actually fall, and fall by a little bit more, but, about the same, but not, not that different. 
And you can see that you know something very natural comes out of this. I mean, this is not, again, imposed in any sort of way. It comes out of the empirical exercise is that in the coldest places in the world, increases in local temperatures are beneficial. Then eventually that crosses zero. So those places, the effect is, uh, is very small. And then in the warmest places in the world, increases in temperature are detrimental. They, 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 they are bad for amenities. And the same is true for productivity. You can, see the, you can see the differences. If anything, for productivity, the effects are larger. So you see in the warmest places in the world, an increase of one degree Celsius in local temperatures decrease local productivity by about 15%. That is a really big effect. Now, of course, what happens when, when, when that happens, people are going to react to that. And we want to think about that reaction and what that reaction does. Because ultimately, the overall cost of climate change are going to depend on that reaction. So these are the outcomes. Once people adjust, etc., what happens to population? Well, of course, population is going to start moving to these other areas. And where are they going to come from? What are the areas that they're going to leave? Exactly those areas here in these regions of the world that I mentioned before. In general, what this tells you is there's going to be 600 million climate immigrants by 2200. That's what this model would predict. And that, of course, is going to have an impact on the local economies. Uh, this is the effect on real GDP, on uh, real uh, gross domestic product of the different locations. And you can see you know, the big effects are, again, where Central Africa, South America here, and parts of Southeast Asia, similar map to that. You can also think about welfare, where you take into account those effects on amenities that we were talking about. But the, the, the map overall looks similar. Look at the scale here for welfare. This is telling you the locations that benefited the most are going to, you know, welfare there is going to increase by about 15%. The places that are going to be hurt the most, welfare is going to decline by about 15%. So Africa, right, and that parts of Central Africa are going to be uh, much worse as a result of this, but parts of Siberia are going to be uh, better off. This is the distribution across locations of those impacts. And so obviously, if I'm telling you these places are going to be very badly affected, while well, these places here are not, and then the rich world is kind of at a cusp where the effects are not going to be that large, that this is going to create, increase inequality quite a bit. And in some sense, this is exactly the main story. The big story is about this change in inequality. The fact that this phenomenon, the main effect is going to be this increase in inequality by which some regions are going to be affected a lot, but those regions happen to be the regions that are the poorest in the world today. So that's, that's telling you, you know, the, the poor countries are much more affected, and it tells you kind of the rate at which that changes as countries have higher income. That's not because they have higher income, but it just happened, they just happen to be in places that are less affected by this phenomenon. And as a result, they're receiving some of the immigrants and some of the, some of the investments that, uh, that result from this. OK, let me take, take a, a couple of minutes to talk about adaptation. So one, one reason why these effects are not as large as the direct effects that I showed you is that people are going to react, like we said. right? They're going to move. 
And so, of course, naturally, to, to, to think about, well, how important is for migration costs to be low so that these people can adapt and, 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 and we can keep the cost of the phenomenon low? And so what this exercise does, it says, well, you know, how larger would the cost be if we increase migration costs? If, as this happens, nations start saying, well, let's close our borders. If that happens, how much larger uh, are going to be the cost of climate change, and where are we going to see them? And so what this is telling you is, well, if you increase those migration costs, the, the red areas are going to be worse off. So obviously, you know, Siberia or northern Canada, they're going to be worse off because they are benefiting from the, from the migrants that are coming in and the development of those areas where, you know, to, today there's very little, right? And Africa and Central Africa is going to benefit or is going to be, sorry, is going to be worse off if you increase migration costs. Why? Because uh, they benefit from sending migrants to those places. But look at South America. Now suddenly Africa and South America are very different. The effects are very different. Why? Because for South America, if you increase migration costs, it's actually not that bad. Why not? Well, it's obviously harder for their people to move to other places, but it also keeps more people in the area relative to scenarios in which lots of people leave, but when they leave, they also, the area kind of loses critical mass for development. So my higher migration costs, in some sense, help some areas, actually hurt some others, like Africa, and uh, those, those no northern latitudes. Overall, it hurts the adjustment process and therefore makes the cost of climate change l much larger. And so migration is an important adaptation uh, mechanism. And not having the cost of migration not increase uh, as we see this phenomenon happen is very important in order to diminish or uh, decrease the cost of climate change. A couple of words on policy. Okay, so now we have the model. The model produces these outcomes that I've been talking about. And now what can we do? We can use it to introduce different types of policies and see what's the impact of those policies. Can, what, what, what can these policies do? So here, what I did is I started with a carbon tax. So the carbon tax is obviously kind of the most natural policy uh, in this context. Why? because it's exactly a context in which the private value of those emissions is different than the social value of those emissions. And so a tax, if you put a price on carbon, you bridge that gap, right? And so that's the kind of basic economic logic. And so we can do that. We can impose a tax in the model and see what would happen if you impose the tax. And so if you impose the tax, say, you go from the baseline case and you impose a tax as large as Sweden, as the Swedish tax, then you would go to the, to the bottom line here. And the, the other cases are in between. Okay. So obviously, you impose the tax. There's less emissions. And so that reduces uh, temperature increases over time. And so that's great. Temperatures go down. And so the negative effect of temperature, uh, it's smaller. Now, what you also see in these curves is that eventually, that effect kind of goes away. Even though we're not taking away the tax, the tax is still, is still there. So why is that? What's happening? Well, what's happening is that at the end of the day, carbon is a finite resource. Right? We can only use so much carbon in the world. Now, if I impose a tax, you consume less carbon. That, that, that works. right? You will consume less carbon. But because you consume less carbon, in the future, 
extracting carbon and using carbon is going to be relatively more costly without the tax. So meaning, if you impose the tax, because you consume less carbon, right, there is more carbon available, and so extracting that carbon is cheaper, and so that, the fact that it's cheaper it kind of cancels, in some sense, that tax. And so that's why these curves eventually cross. So where is that effect coming from? It's coming from the fact that the more carbon you extract, the more costly in relative terms, relative to clean energy, carbon extraction be becomes. And so what's the ultimate effect of, of carbon taxes? Is just to reduce temperatures, but mostly to flatten this temperature curve. You see how it's, it's lower, but it's kind of flatter, right? You, you kind of start from the same point, and you end up more or less in the same point, but throughout the, the levels are smaller. Now that's useful, right? But certainly not as useful if you had an overall effect on the total amount of carbon used. What, what's the sense in which it is useful? Well, it has cost today, so these are the relative costs. It has cost today, but it has benefit in the, benefits in the future. And so when we impose carbon taxes, we are essentially doing this intertemporal trade-off. It's costly today, beneficial in the future, particularly beneficial in the future because of the growth effects that it's going to have in certain parts of the world. Now, because at the end of the day, you're kind of essentially just flattening the curve, right? The effects are large, but not as large. And so really, the best combination is one where you combine it with some sort of abatement technology. So think about it. The, the analogy is, uh, there's a good analogy with the vaccine, uh, the COVID vaccine. It was good to go home to flatten the infection curve so that not so many people got infected, etc. But why was it that good in principle? Well, it was good because we were waiting for the solution. We were waiting for the vaccine, right? If the vaccine was not coming, then sending everyone home was not so useful because at some point, whenever we all got out, we would get infected anyway. So it was, it was a measure that was useful while we waited for the solution. And carbon taxes kind of have a little bit of that flavor as well. It's very useful while we wait for an abatement technology. And in fact, if this is the case, if there's an abatement technology forthcoming in 2100, then these, these effects are much larger. And as these effects are larger, the benefits of the carbon uh, tax today is more, are much larger because waiting helps. In that case, waiting helps a lot. Not having high temperatures now helps a lot uh, because eventually the solution comes and we can kind of capture carbon from the air. And so, you know, combining this with policies that make that, uh, the arrival of such technologies uh, better or more likely is, is, is kind of important. Okay, finally, there's clean energy subsidies. In this world, clean energy subsidies have the problem that, yes, they increase clean energy use in terms of shares, but also make energy cheaper. And as a result of making energy cheaper, make the world consume more energy overall. So there's kind of that effect relative to, combined with the relative effect. They both go in, both in different directions. And so at the end of the day, as you can see, that has small effects on overall temperatures, at least in the, in the, in the quantification that we have. OK, let me leave you with these three points uh, just to reiterate. Important to do the policy evaluation. We cannot make it a categorical issue. Any, we need to do anything to, no, it's not anything. We need to think about exactly what is the value of the particular policies and what is the cost 
at stake in order to be able to effectively argue that it's more important than other priorities for society. And if you do that, the, the key issue is that the effects are very heterogeneous in, in space and affect the poorest regions more. And then the solution is we need to talk about carbon taxes, but we need to talk about other forms of abatement technologies as well. You've been listening to Esteban Rossi-Hansberg, the Glenn A. Lloyd Distinguished Service Professor at the University of Chicago and co-director of BFI's International Economics and Economic Geography Initiative. Thank you for joining us for today's Extra Slice of the Pie. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute. Our theme and original music were produced by Story Mechanics. We'll see you next time.